Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is fresh, like straight out the box fresh. If you thought Chris Watts was a monster, hold on to your shorts. Small talk is worth less than an empty Easter egg, so let's dive in. Once upon a time, just roll with it, there was a man named Robert Tote. He was a special education teacher and a wrestling coach for Ben Salem High School in Pennsylvania. One day in 1980, he called up one of his former learning disabled students, 20-year-old John Chermont, who was known to have a drug and alcohol problem, and offered him a solid $800 if he'd shoot Robert's so-called babysitter. According to Heavy.com, John really didn't have to do anything but the killing. Robert supplied the directions and the gun. Robert drove John to the hospital that his wife, not babysitter, Loretta, worked at and instructed John to wait for her to get off of work and surprised her when she got into the car. He told him to drive her to some back road, shoot her, and leave her there. But John couldn't bring himself to do it, and when I say he couldn't bring himself to do it, I mean that he didn't like the whole surprise bad guy in the car bit. He was still down to kill Loretta, just not that way. So instead, Robert gave John a key to his family home. On the evening of March 19, 1980, Robert headed out claiming he was going to attend some night school classes, but he wasn't at school. He was with his fiance, Colleen Foucault, who was a former student of his turned nurse. She had no idea he was married, and they had planned a wedding for April 19, 1980, just a month later. To add insult to injury, not only did Robert have a wife and a fiancé, he also had a teenage girlfriend who was also a student of his, Judy Worthington. Robert had made a promise to Judy that he would take her on vacation with the money from his wife's inheritance. Not long after Robert, the homicidal pimp, left, John entered the house through the garage and went straight to Loretta's room where she was laying in her bed, but Loretta put up a fight. Her four-year-old son, Tony, who was in his room, heard his mom scream and ran in to see a strange man wrestling with his mommy. And then, boom, John Chermont shot Loretta Tote in the head. Assuming she was dead, he pulled out some drawers and rifled through them to make it look like a burglary, but, you know, he failed to actually take anything? You would assume that Loretta died seeing as she was shot in the freaking face, but you would be wrong. When Robert got home a little before midnight, he expected to find his kids asleep and his dead wife in his bed, but he done fucked up his plan. Loretta was still alive. He either had to watch her die and explain himself, kill her himself after wasting that whole $800 on a back alley hitman, or call 911. So he called 911. Loretta lost an eye and still has a bullet lodged in her skull, but she made a full recovery and everyone just kind of wondered what the fuck happened that night. That's until John Chermont was brought into the police station on unrelated charges and sang like a fucking canary about Loretta's attempted murder. Telling them everything. On July 25th, four months after his wife was shot in the face and three months after his very obviously canceled wedding to his fiance, he was formally arrested on charges relating to his wife's shooting. John Chermont took a deal where he would spend no more than five years in jail if he agreed to testify against Robert in court. I mean, even his fiancé and girlfriend testified against him. 
And the trial was a doozy. The evidence was pretty damning and Robert was 100% going to get convicted. But plot twist, Loretta didn't believe a single word out of anyone's mouth. She sat there and supported her husband throughout all of the proceedings and even after he was convicted of attempted murder, criminal solicitation, and conspiracy. He was sentenced to a whopping 10 to 20 years. However, the Philadelphia Daily News reported that the Supreme Court felt like his sentence was excessive and resentenced him to 5 to 10 years. You know what I think's excessive? Getting shot in the face with your kids in the house. John Chermont was sentenced to four years, but only wound up serving two at the Byberry Psychiatric Hospital before being released. Loretta, still blinded by her love, did everything she could to keep her little family together and took the kids to see their murderous father in jail for quite a while. It wasn't until 1981 that she finally saw the light and filed for divorce. And once she saw the light, that shit was bright. She started thinking back and realized that she was pretty sure Robert had tried to kill her on two other occasions. According to a Philadelphia Daily News article in 1984, she recounted that she thinks Robert tried to blow up her car prior to the shooting and thinks he tried to poison her afterward, though she never reported either of those incidents to police. Loretta was finally free from the domestic purgatory she was in, but the damage had already been done. Obviously physically, but psychologically, it took a toll on her kids as well. Her son, Tony, had nightmares daily. She even tried switching his room to stop them. Robert was ultimately released after serving out his sentence and just went on with his life like nothing happened. He fell in love again, got married again, and even started a family again. He did what he could to maintain a relationship with a family that would allow it, but not his son, Tony. That relationship was ruined for life. Tony did his best to put his traumatic past behind him, and he seemed to do pretty well. He excelled in school. He fell in love with a girl named Megan, whom he ultimately married and had three kids and a dog with, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe, and of course, Breezy. The two went on to get master's degrees in physical therapy and started two businesses, which were based out of Connecticut. A regular old physical therapy practice and another called Performance Edge Sports, and on the outside, they both seemed to be thriving and had impeccable reviews. One read, Tony is the absolute best. He really cares about everyone who walks through the door and helped me so much with my foot pain. He's a good human, an amazing physical therapist. I highly recommend him and the others in his practice. Trustworthy, kind, and he truly knows his stuff. They were doing so well that the two sold their house in Connecticut and bought a property in Florida and rented a second home just blocks away in a place called Celebration. It's a small community built by the Walt Disney Company. It's legit a dream house. Tony would commute back and forth, seeing patients in Connecticut Tuesday through Friday and spending time with his family in Florida Saturday through Monday. Megan quit her job as a physical therapist to be a full-time mom, and who wouldn't? I mean, if you're doing that well, you have two booming businesses, a home, and a freaking Disney-built rental home. Stay at home with your kids, man. Live your life, and she did. She dedicated her days to homeschooling and doting on her three little ones, who were now 13, 11, and 4. 
According to their neighbors, the Tote family always seemed happy. The kids played with other children in the neighborhood on a daily basis. The family could be seen out walking their dog Breezy together, and no one ever heard them argue. In fact, Tony's Facebook account was essentially an ode day how much he loved his wife and kids. One post saying, so thankful for these beautiful souls in my life. But life isn't always as it seems. Tony was in an Armageddon of debt that he kept trying to get out of the easy way. He would default on loans, then take out other loans to pay those loans, and the cycle would continue and continue and continue. His family had no clue. As of 2020, Tony had two lawsuits out against him, one for 63000 and another for 36000 Just two days before Christmas of 2019, he paid 278 thousand dollars to settle a debt of over four hundred thousand dollars i did a little digging and found 11 liens that had been taken out against him since 2005 every last one of them were in his name and his name only between 2015 and 2018 tony took out over 20 loans all of which he still owes on Seriously, what kind of magical credit does this guy have? As if being in a shithole of mounting debt wasn't enough, Tony was also being investigated by the Attorney General's office for false claims, meaning that Tony was creating fake invoices for visits that never happened and submitting them to insurance companies and then pocketing the money. And this wasn't new. Dude Man had been getting away for this for five years and was somehow still in debt. According to WFSB, he did it to try and stay on top of all the personal loans he had taken out, telling the police that he was living beyond his means. But Tony didn't put up a fight. In November, he straight up confessed to the fraud and agreed to plead guilty. His family still had no clue that they were in insurmountable debt. They had no idea he was being investigated. I don't even think they knew that his license to practice had expired in September of 2019. Not only did he have the weight of debt and the government on his shoulders, he had to pretend to his family that everything was fine. A friend of Megan's says that she never seemed stressed or worried about anything. She never mentioned any debt whatsoever. In November around Thanksgiving, Tony headed back to Florida for the holidays, leaving a sign on the practice door saying that they would be reopening after the first of the year. But patients started getting calls from the office manager, canceling all their future appointments with Tony, citing personal problems. As if the debt and the fraud and living a double life wasn't enough, Tony had stopped paying their $4,921 a month rent on their Florida home and received an eviction notice. On December 26, 2019, the summons was served. Now, these kind of summons aren't something that you have to sign for or a guy dressed in a hot dog costume asks you for your name and hands you a manila envelope and says you've been served. Generally, the sheriff deputies in the area are given a bunch of summons to deliver that day. They knock on your door, but if you don't answer, they just rubber band it to your doorknob so that it's there when you get home. One of the homeschool music teachers they worked with visited their house in celebration on the 14th of December. She remembered it being odd that there wasn't a single Christmas decoration up in the entire house. A neighbor tells WESH that she had seen the whole family walking their dog around Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving, she noted that all the blinds were down and never came back up, and the pumpkin decor in the yard stayed there well into the Christmas season. 
According to WFTV, another neighbor says that they haven't seen the family since December 15th, and up until then, she would see the tote kids playing almost daily with other children in the neighborhood. She noticed that their car was packed to the brim, so she just kind of figured that they were going out of town or something. Alec was 13 and had his own phone at this point, and one of his teachers said that she got a text from him on the 16th of December. She last texted with Megan on the 13th. On Christmas Day, Tony's family texted asking for pictures of the kids opening their gifts, and he responded with a simple, they're sleeping. Dude, no, they're not. It's in their DNA. Kids do not sleep on Christmas. It's a thing. Google it. On the 27th, a family member texted Tony, and I couldn't tell you what it was about, but I can tell you that he told them that the entire family of five was sick with the flu and then completely stopped responding to anyone. Two days later, after hearing nothing, this family member called for a welfare check. The police went to the house and knocked on the door. It was locked, and as the neighbor had already noticed, all their blinds were down. He walked around the property but didn't see anything unusual, so he went and talked to a few neighbors who hadn't noticed anything strange, so he left. They never did a second welfare check because the family member who requested the first one apparently never followed up. On January 6th of 2020, as if one eviction notice wasn't enough, another one was slapped on the door of the Connecticut physical therapy practice. It turns out that he had only made a partial payment of November's rent and never paid December or January's rent. Literally, the world as this family knows it is crashing down around them and only Tony knows. This is when Tony's sisters start getting really concerned and create a Facebook group called Looking for the Tote Family, which doesn't seem odd until you realize that no missing persons reports were ever filed for any members of the Tote Family. A Facebook group was made and strangers were encouraged to join and spread the word, but not a single phone call had been made to the police to report the family missing. To make it weirder, the sisters told the group members that authorities in both Connecticut and Florida were involved in the investigation into their missing relatives, at one point even saying that they were following the lead of the authorities because it's an active investigation. When a poster asked if they were having their cell phones pinged, she got the response, the authorities are involved in both Connecticut and Florida. It's certainly much easier on TV. It's certainly much easier if you actually call the police, too. A spokesperson for the Connecticut State Police said that absolutely zero missing persons reports had ever been filed in connection to the Tote family. The Orlando Sentinel confirmed this when they submitted a records request for missing persons reports filed on behalf of any members of the Tote family and were told that there were none. A few members of the Facebook group, which has now been deleted, you're shocked, I know, say that a number of members offered to go to the house to check on the family but were told that the police were handling it. But they weren't. Just prior to the group being taken down by Tony's sisters, posts about the family's vehicles, whereabouts, or when they had last heard from a member of the family started disappearing, which seemed odd because that was the whole purpose of the group, right? It started off as something they wanted people they didn't even know to join, and now they're lying about the police being involved, an imaginary investigation, and telling people not to check on the family they were seemingly so worried about. A lot of people started speculating, and I'll let your mind wander with that one. Deleting the group ultimately became easier than evading questions or just altogether deleting them, and when asked why it was taken down, Tony's sister simply responded that she wasn't going to explain anything. Okay, then. I should also note that on the 6th, a neighbor texted Megan to let her know that there was an eviction notice on the door and got the response, Okay, thanks. 
On January 8th, someone got a text from Tony's phone and initially they were elated until they read the text and realized that it was someone from a Sarasota Starbucks who said that the phone had been left there. Sarasota is two hours away from their home in celebration, but the family still held out hope. Tony and his oldest son, Alec, were due to take a flight to Connecticut on January 9th to see family. Certainly, they would see them the next day and they could stop worrying. But they started worrying even more because they never showed up and they never sent an explanation as to why. Tony never canceled with his family. Alec never texted any of his friends in Connecticut. They just didn't show up. And let's be real, no one buys a plane ticket without the intention of actually getting on the plane. Those things are absurdly expensive. On the 10th, the landlord goes to the house to try and contact anyone inside. They're being evicted after all, but again, no one answers. He walks around the house and sees no one, so he leaves and has the power cut off. None of their social media accounts have been touched and all of their phones are either dead or off and everyone who's been here a while knows how I feel about cell phones. Living people don't turn off perfectly good cell phones. If someone's cell phone is off, something is wrong. They're either committing a crime or they're a victim of one. Facts. Sort of. On Monday, January 13th at 9 a.m., 40-something police officers convert on the Tote household, but it wasn't because they were missing. They were there to serve a federal arrest warrant for health care fraud. They had been doing surveillance on the house to know when Tony would be home, and that day they saw him. They went to the door, and obviously he didn't answer, because why start now? Thankfully enough, the door was unlocked, and police just let themselves in and are immediately hit with the unmistakable smell of human decomposition that only got stronger as they got further into the house, according to the Orlando Sentinel. They find Tony coming down the stairs, shaking his ass off, and holding on to the banister. They ask if anyone else is in the home, and Tony tells them that his kids might be at a friend's house for a sleepover, and that his wife Megan was sleeping upstairs. Police call out for her but got no response, and they didn't hear any movement either. The officers clear the house room by room until they get to the master bedroom on the second floor, and they're stopped in their tracks. The Orlando Sentinel, who has done an amazing job covering this case, reports that they immediately notice a body on the bed wrapped in blankets with feet sticking out that are black and blue. It was Megan. This was actually somewhat captured through a window by reporters. As they got further into the room, they find two more bodies wrapped in blankets on a mattress on the floor. They're the bodies of Alec and Tyler. Knowing that Zoe was still unaccounted for, they looked for her until they found another body wrapped in blankets at the foot of the bed. Inside was little Zoe. What's interesting is that according to the wonderful Orlando Sentinel, the police said that it was obvious that Megan and the boys had been dead for quite some time, but that leaves out Zoe. So had Tony considered sparing his youngest child and only daughter, but later changed his mind? Police believe that they had been killed sometime in late December and Tony had been living in the home with their dead bodies this entire time. 
This is Florida. The weather that week had been in the mid to upper 80s and they had no electricity. Whatever decomposition had taken place between late December and January 10th when the power was shut off was put on fast forward with the heat between January 10th and the 13th. It wasn't until the bodies were moved to be taken to the medical examiner's office that any wounds became apparent. Tony's family heard about the bodies of a family being found in Florida via Facebook. They called police themselves to ask if it was their family members, but it wasn't until Connecticut police called that they were told Florida homicide detectives would be in touch with them. A preliminary autopsy report is finally released, which revealed the following. Alec and Tyler were identified through dental records. Megan's identification is still pending, but they're pretty certain it's her, and by certain, I mean it's her. Megan, Alec, and Tyler all had brown and green discoloration and skin slippage. They were in a significant state of decomposition and had likely been dead for two to four weeks based on the research I did on states of decomp, which I seriously do not recommend doing. Alec was found in only his underwear, Tyler was wearing a shirt, underwear, and pants. Megan was wearing a shirt, pants, underwear, and socks. And Zoe was wearing a shirt and pants. With Alec only in his underwear and Megan wearing no bra, it sounds to me like they may have been in their pajamas when they were killed. To add to that theory, Megan was found on the bed and Tony was not the epitome of physical fitness, so I doubt she died outside of her bed only for him to lift her up onto it. Dead weight is much heavier than the weight of someone in control of their center of gravity. Alec had a stab wound three inches wide and almost six inches deep. Tyler had a stab wound that was two inches wide and more than 10 inches deep. Megan had two small stab wounds, one of which was only three inches wide and one inch deep. Remember that Zoe had no obvious signs of injury, and she seemed to have been in a lesser state of decomposition than the rest of the family, so it sounds like she may have been alive for a considerably longer amount of time than her mom and brothers. The toxicology results are still pending. Some speculate that the family was drugged or smothered and that the stab wounds were post-mortem in an effort to release gases from the body during the bloating stage of decomposition, but we honestly do not know at this point. Generally, stab wounds are not immediately fatal. They cause fatal bleeding, but it's not like a gunshot to the heart or brain. If they were alive when they were stabbed in the abdomen, that means that Tony's wife and two sons died a very slow, very painful death that they were all very aware was happening as it happened. WFTV interviewed a neighbor who said that investigators asked her if she ever smelled chlorine or bleach coming from the home, and she hadn't, but assumes that it was used due to the heavy questioning. Now, authorities have stated that Tony made that December 23rd debt payment just days before killing his family, so I have to guess that he killed them on either the 24th or the 25th when he refused to send photos of the kids opening their gifts. Tony was handcuffed and taken out of the house via an ambulance to a local hospital after claiming that he had taken Benadryl in an effort to commit suicide. In order for this 250-pound man to overdose on Benadryl, he would need to consume 200-ish 25-milligram tablets based on a study from ScienceDirect.com, where a 242-pound man overdosed on 230 pills but was ultimately treated and released. The biggest box of Benadryl I could find contained 100 tablets, so they would have had to have an insane amount of Benadryl at that house for this to be an actual suicide attempt. 
which I'm guessing it wasn't since Tony was walking and talking just fine when he was arrested, the man in the Science Direct study was totally incoherent during his overdose. Sure, Tony was shaking like a leaf when he was arrested, but that's to be expected when you've got the bodies of your wife, children, and the family dog decomposing in a room upstairs. Fucking Chris Watts didn't even kill the dog. On January 15th, Tony confesses to murdering his entire family, including the dog Breezy, and is charged with four counts of premeditated murder and one count of animal cruelty. He's given no bond whatsoever on the murder charges and a $1,500 bond for the animal cruelty charge, which he's certainly not going to pay since he'd still be held on the murder charges. If convicted, Tony will face either life in prison without parole or the death penalty, and frankly, I can't imagine a jury in hell that wouldn't sentence anyone to death for what he did. On January 26th, he has his first court appearance, where he's assigned a public defender and schedules another hearing for January 25th. Tony Tote came from a family of murder and became a family of murder. I would be fascinated to hear his father's thoughts on this, but I've looked him up and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't even know. The two held no relationship after his mother filed for divorce and his father, Robert, seemed to move on with his life effortlessly after being released from prison. From what I can see, he's close to his daughter and son, loves his wife, motorcycles, and his granddaughter, but what the fuck do I know? If I've learned anything from researching these cases, it's that nothing is as it seems and anyone is capable of anything. Megan, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe were living a carefree life with the husband they viewed as their biggest supporter and caretaker, celebrating Thanksgiving and looking forward to the Christmas season, never in a million years, thinking that their knight in shining armor, the man who hung their moon, was hiding so many secrets, never thinking in a million years that those secrets might cost them their lives. The funerals for the Tote family are scheduled to take place at the end of this month, and as court dates continue and more information are released, you know I will update the crap out of you. For photos of the Tote family and everything else related to their case, head over to their highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me here tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me and we talk about the crazy bullshit that is family annihilators. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for $1 a month, your podcasts are totally ad-free. For $5 a month, you get an extra podcast episode on the first Monday of each month, the Mondayest Monday, exclusive only to Patreon members. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. <laughs>